Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Fiber attacks have been transmitting across the civil-military divide for decades, but recent activities have given heightened awareness to the importance and role of robust cybersecurity protections in both the military and civilian commercial network operations. While the government and commercial sectors lack a comprehensive strategy on how to confront cyber threats and the authoritarian government's influence in the digital sphere, we often struggle with the dotted line relationships that are the epicenter of modern security challenges. Our guest today has many suggestions for improving responsibility sharing tools for both the public and private sectors to enable a more efficient capability in our national cyber resilience. Jason Blessing is a Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Research Fellow on AEI's Foreign and Defense Policy Team, where he focuses on cybersecurity, military cyber forces, military technological transformation and force structure, along with U.S. cyber defense policy and civilian and military dynamics in cyberspace. Jason also studies NATO and broader strategic challenges to transatlantic relationships. Jason recently authored a report titled The Advantage Gained, Building on U.S. Cybercom NSA's Dual Hat Synergy Model, which looks at the equities around sharing the tasks around government and data gathering and information sharing capabilities. Given the continued urgency of this matter with global threats to our communications and critical infrastructure, the question is, will the Biden administration release a national cybersecurity strategy in the near future? Jason and I discussed the importance of finding the synergies among our information gathering operations to continually manage the cyber threats on the horizon. Jason, welcome to Explain to Shane. So you recently released a report uh, that is analyzed the dual hat leadership model where the same individual oversees U.S. cyber commanders known as uh, Cybercom and the NSA, uh, National Security Agency. Talk to us about the current role that that is playing and what was the catalyst for you to write the paper? Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me on, Shane. Uh, the, the catalyst behind the paper, uh, to sort of take your questions in reverse order, uh, is there was some uh, committee legislation bouncing around in the House and in the Senate about, uh, you know, we've had the discussion over whether to separate the dual hat and have different command structures for these two organizations, the NSA and Cyber Command. Uh, we've had this uh, in, a, in this conversation ongoing for quite some time. Uh, what had changed was in some draft legislation and some of uh, closed door conversations were uh, removing, re- removing effectiveness from the considerations of splitting these two organizations. I think, you know, everyone talks about, you know, these two organizations have two very different missions. Uh, and so, you know, the National Security Agency is an intelligence organization. It uh, operates under Title 50 intelligence authorities, uh, legal authorities. And they're really focused on cryptologic portfolios and signals intelligence and network exploitation when it comes to cyber. Cyber Command, on the other hand, is military. Title 10 authorities, uh, you know, the tip of the cyber spear, so to speak, uh, in terms of actually, you know, disrupting networks uh, is where there's a little bit of the difference. Uh, and so to separate these organizations out, legislators and a lot of people in executive branches in previous administrations and in the current administration have focused on, okay, we need to have, make sure that both have individual capabilities to carry out their missions, individual maturity, and specifically talking in terms of cyber command. Uh, what drove Richard Harknett and I to write this report is we had some legislators and some conversations where effectiveness was being dropped uh, from the conversation. To, so to sum up, in, in essence, the, the catalyst really was in terms of 
do we want to have two separate organizations in the first place? But if we do, they have to have effectiveness as a key criteria. Uh, and our, our large, largely our argument is, you know, hinges on effectiveness in the sense that really the most effective arrangement is to maintain this dual-headed leadership. Uh, and we can get into why that might be the case here in a little bit. Yeah. So as somebody who's been on the civilian commercial side of this ledger for cybersecurity for quite some time, I was trying to get in the head of you know, the other side of the argument. And it's very hard for me because I do think that, um, first of all, we, I think there's not a complete understanding that we are in a continuous cyber war. So the idea of when the charters were maybe created for the two organizations were very different. They were also created a long time ago. Well, not cyber command, but um, NSA. And now um, the, the ability to, with the dual hat to take the redundancy and potentially the inefficiency out of the process, it would, it candidly would cost more. And I, I was asking a friend of mine who is a, was at the NSA for 30 years about this when I saw we were doing this podcast. And he said, Here's what the way I would think of it. If you split these two apart, it'd be the equivalent of NSA having to do a virtual suitcase that they would walk across to another room and you would have a time lagged conversation about information that really needs to be had at the same time. And when we created um when we, we first created this, you know, one of the challenges looking at some of the, the people that were involved is back when you go with the, like the FBI, uh, CIA, other people that are involved. There, there, at the very beginning, there was a lot of um, consternation about losing territory, right? But I think I'm hoping we have gotten to a, a point now where the process is for there to be very symmetrical conversations along the way and information sharing is flowing. And is there is there a reason now for people to want to separate these other than they originally were two separate entities? Well, uh, on the one hand, so there are there are reasons. But I think it's worth noting that, and this is a, a point that a lot of the advocates for splitting the dual hat, uh, a lot of advocates for that argument, uh, they tend to overlook that this actually, you know, this predates Cyber Command. This, they weren't actually two separate organizations to begin with. In 1996, when the military stood up Joint Task Force Computer Network Defense, which through several iterations of a joint task force eventually became Cyber Command, it was, uh, you know, prior to Cyber Command, it was... Joint Task Force, Network Warfare, uh, a Functional Component Command under STRATCOM, Strategic Command. Uh, before that, it had, was Joint Task Force Global Network Operations. Before that, Joint Task Force Computer Network Operations. And then the originator was JTFCND, the Computer Network Defense Joint Task Force. Uh, the, the leadership was always dual-hatted. Uh, and so if you, if you actually look at the historical uh, you know, progress of this arrangement, uh, a, some of the argument comes apart at the seams for, for these advocates because it's predated the 2010 standoff of Cyber Command. Uh, so I think that's one point worth noting. But there are, I will concede, there are some points uh, in favor, uh, theoretically, of separating out the dual hat, one of which is it's two very large organizations, and it's extremely hard for one commander and one staff, so to say, uh, to really direct out and manage just organizationally two different organizations. So there's, you know, there's sort of the, the corporate organizational argument. Uh, the other is that, you know, the, the, the democratic argument uh, in a, you know, I use the democratic as in small d as in uh, the democratic principles of do we want to have intertwined our intelligence and military, you know, so tightly intertwined when theoretically from a civil military and intelligence perspective, uh, it's easier to, for civilian control to sort of divide and conquer, right, and keep these missions separate 
because they serve different functions. Uh, you know, you have to balance that, however, though, with the fact that, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a little hesitant to use the phrase cyber war because of the connotations it has for the public at large. Right. But we are Sorry, in constant conflict. competition. Yeah, right. constant competition, persistent engagement with our adversaries. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it's not a one-off. It's, it's ongoing. Uh, and so the question is, how do we make use of limited resources? Uh, there's some duplication that has to be done necessarily because there are different strategic and mission requirements, uh, different strategic ends for each of these organizations. But because the operational requirements and tactical requirements are so intertwined, uh, why wouldn't you, you know, use the best of both worlds and then pick and choose uh, which mission to prioritize at, you know, at what given stage? Uh, so there is, yeah, there is, you know, to the, your example, there's time lag, but also just think about it in terms of bureaucratic uh, competition and bureaucratic politics. If you split two organizations, you're going to have two different heads of the organizations who, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to reconcile those strategic ends and missions and prioritization of, you know, military or intelligence equities, given the specific uh, instance at hand. Yeah, you just said the key word. I remember Keith Alexander saying back when this it was equities is that, you know, really the metrics are very much parallel. And the challenge I think we, we continue to have is our, adver- our adversaries uh, in China, Russia, New North Korea, they wouldn't have two separate organizations. Now, you know, we have this for reasons of the way that our U.S. government, you know, looks at defense separately from we do civilian entities. But, uh, you know, the, our adversaries are not doing that and not taking the opportunity to think more the way they think, I think puts a a definite challenge into our ability to both defend and as well as think of offensively about how to protect our assets. Uh, and um, the colonial pipeline, I guess, really comes to mind where, you know, that was, I, I did a lot of um, discussions uh, with people and it was amazing to me. First of all, I love that FBI agents are now everybody's favorite new CTOs. So, you know, you just go, what, what happened here? And you go, well, they didn't, they didn't understand tabletop exercises. They didn't understand right. a lot of the tools that they needed to do. So they're like, go hire the guy that actually does that stuff. And I do hope because energy is so important to everything. So as much as I love technology, I couldn't have technology without energy. Right. So, um, you know, that we we needed somebody to come in with a, a different mindset about protecting assets um, from a civilian side. And so in that part of it, I, I see the elegance to the two, but I, I haven't had the time to really look into, is there a reason why we should separate these? So is there something I haven't thought about that the other side might has a point there? They're like, this is, something else is not getting accomplished because we've chosen this dual hat process. Well, one of the, you know, it's it's the it's the other side of the coin from what uh, I argue is that you know it increases the effectiveness of both overall and our you know at large our our government uh, national security goals. But there is an argument to be made that as long as you keep two organizations intertwined, uh, it's going to hamper the specialization of each if to rely on each other, right? I think there is you know this it's to some degree abstract, but uh, to bring it a little more concretely, how can you fully uh, create greater effectiveness with the military side of things if they're necessarily tied to an intelligence mission uh, or, you know, intelligence equities of the NSA and vice versa, right? Uh, You know, there's, how can you, how can you adequately pursue uh, and create the greatest possible effectiveness for each organization if they have a symbiotic relationship? And the answer shortly is you can't, 
right? You can't fully optimize each organization if they're tied to each other because they have different strategic ends. You know, one is focused on largely passive collection, although it's, you know, the NSA has largely shifted to active intelligence collection with the rise of networks uh, and the need to actually penetrate networks to gain intelligence on them um, versus, you know, the strategic military ends of ultimately you want to disrupt your adversaries and have a setback, right? Uh, those are two different missions. Uh, but, the, you know, at the end of the day, you have to also look past that purely organizational lens and pure bureaucratic lens and, and ask, to your point, how does this help us in the long game versus these adversaries that don't make as such distinctions between intelligence and military capabilities? Uh, you know, and largely they don't separate out their ends. Their legal systems are either, you know, really non-existent or extremely different from what we have here in the U.S. and in other democracies. And they're very good at exploiting, you know, uh, a key feature of democracies, which is the segmentation of authority. Uh, you know, that's any way, you know, on a large scale that authoritarian regimes, not just in cyberspace, but any way they can, uh, you know, create daylight between our separation of powers, whether it be between our branches of government, uh, separate, you know, uh, the separation of society from uh, our, our government writ large, uh, or even bureaucratic alignments, right? Uh, they're all about exploiting segmentation. And the answer to me is, you know, with this question of, you know, there are good organizational and, you know, legal reasons to keep these separate. At the end of the day, we are still within legal bounds to have this dual hat, and it helps us overcome some of that segmentation that could be exploited by our adversaries. And it helps our reaction time and helps judge our overall approach, not just one equity or the other. Uh, I read the 9-11 report, which was heartbreaking, uh, when you realize how close we were and that we did have the puzzle pieces, but we didn't have them all in one place. So the, the segmentation argument really um, holds true for me. I think then when we created the Department of Homeland Security and stood up the counterterrorism analysis center. And so uh, the, the stories that came out of that from everybody being on the same watch floor at the beginning was a, a little bit of... Um, I, you know, just different ways that it, you had cops, spies, and soldiers all in one place, right? And and it, they just, they came from a different command structure. They came from a different, you know, pro proposition about why they were there. And eventually they smoothed it out. And so from what I understand now, there, it's much more of a hand in glove operation, even though the information flow goes to various points for their different reasons for being. I I would assume it's a similar situation with the NSA and Cybercom um, with that, where they, the information flow is important, but the, the, the end point for the information flow may be different depending on what the mission is. That's exactly the case. And, you know, it's, it's not just uh, the NSA and Cybercom with the information flow. And I think the perfect example uh, is what was called the Russia Small Task Force, uh, essentially for uh, protecting elections. Uh, which is now, I think it's been formalized, you know, a, a more formalized task force of the, you know, election security task force. Of course, it includes the NSA and Cyber Command, but it has also included the FBI, elements of the CIA and elements of CISA, uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, and the key, one of the, the, the fantastic things and great successes about that task force and why it's been, you know, sort of permanently stood up is it cuts down on barriers to information flow to all these other agencies. You're 100% right, Shane, in the sense that, you know, they all are going to use it to different purposes. CISA is going to worry much more about what's going on in the private sector and be able to communicate and you know, have disclosure uh, from private sectors to be able to, you know, increase communication and the public, uh, close that public-private gap. NSA is going to be worried about collecting more intelligence. Cybercom is, you know, are we going to be able to take down a Russian troll farm with this information? 
but the fact that there's the information flow has really helped smooth things over. So that's that's definitely one of the 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 perks of having it, the dual hat in place. On the one hand, is you've got one commander that can help you know facilitate that information sharing. But I think you know to a broader point, what you've seen with uh, and your, your your remark about uh, General Keith Alexander makes me think about this. Uh, you know, kudos to the Biden administration for putting talent in the right places, because you have, you know, Nakasone, uh, General uh, Paul Nakasone, who is, you know, director of the NSA and commander of Cyber Command in that dual hat role. You also have Jen Easterly at CISA, and you've got some folks in uh, the National Cyber Director's Office and at the National Security Council who were all acolytes of General Alexander. Uh, they all came up and, uh, you know, we're are, are of a similar mindset and obviously are in different organizational roles and will clash over different ends, but they come from a similar mindset, which we had largely lacked in government until then. So, you know, you can't also roll out, you know, the, the generational change, so to say, and the interpersonal connections that also really enhance and facilitate information sharing. You, uh, in your paper, which I highly recommend, we will put it in the show notes, you talk about the transition mentality to a synergy orientation. And I thought that was a really interesting point to talk about the actual mindset change that was needed to start to accomplish this and, and look at this. So tell us how we're doing and why that's important. So uh, a, a fun anecdote, which uh, there, there was some of this in my dissertation several years ago uh, that I was working on for my degree. I mean, just, uh, you know, in the early days of even sharing office space, right, uh, there was conflict between NSA parking and Cybercom parking and who gets which parking spots. Uh, and there was a, there was an anecdote where it was after hours, right, at, uh, at Fort Meade, and in, civilian NSA employees had parked in, you know, some military commander's, uh, you know, uh, parking spot, but it was after hours, so it was fine. But, you know, in the, in the military cultural element, even never if it's after that. hours, exactly, right. you would never do that. But on the civilian side, they say, hey, that's a better parking spot. It's after hours, so it's no longer a sign. Uh, it's, you know, things like that, that that's just emblematic of, uh, just the infighting and the reluctance of the NSA uh, to sort of let in, uh, you know, the military, you know, come in and sort of blow up all their tools and all the vulnerabilities that they have and whatever exploits. And, you know, there's there's a real fear surrounding the security of the intelligence mission of, you know, can, you know, can we can we keep our bureaucratic turf safe from these, uh, uh, you know, military guys that just want to come in and take networks offline? Uh, and there's, you know, there, so there's always that bureaucratic politics element. But I think what and particularly what you've seen over the years uh, with how we started to smooth out, at least internally, uh, between NSA and Cyber Command, uh, smooth out some of those equities. And again, the, the, the election task force is a great example of that. But you also have examples of literally just the physical space sharing of the battle bridge at Fort Meade. Uh, where you can come in and, you know, depending on what operation is being conducted, you give authorization for employees, of, you know, whether it's military personnel or civilian personnel, uh, they can co-mingle in the same area, which is just, you know, would have been unheard of. Uh, There's like a big bright line that used to be down the, they just didn't cross. You're like, nope. Essentially, yeah. That's, well, even if, even, you know, even if there's not tape on the floor, you still wouldn't go to the other person's side of the office or go into, you know, whatever section of the building. Did they put uh, better snacks on the NSA side until finally the military guys would walk over to the, like, they've got a curate. You know, or, it, you know, if, if, if I were in charge, you, you, you put it right in the middle of the building and that way you can't avoid uh, some water cooler talk. But that, no, that's, uh, I mean, those are, those are small examples, but, you know, it's, it's emblematic of the, 
the tension has become less between the NSA and Fabricom and more between, uh, you know, the their joint relationship to the rest of the intelligence and military community, uh, which, I, you know, is, is progress and is a good thing uh, from the perspective of getting these two organizations aligned and and now being able to sort of educate on what cyber tools can do for, you know, the rest of the intelligence agencies or, you know, smoothing out the relationship with the CIA, which has always been a big bureaucratic turf fight in this area, uh, or explaining to other combatant commanders in the military what cyber can actually do for you and what it can't do for you. Uh, so that that's definitely moved in the right direction. Uh, and I, I think one thing that you can certainly look at uh, has been, that's been a product of good leadership at Cybercom, um, particularly under Nakasone right now. Uh, I know there were, there were some discontents with uh, the previous commander, Admiral Mike Rogers, uh, who had said he prioritized intelligence a little too much uh, over the military side of the house. Uh, but again, you know, you look at context, the, the environment changed. Uh, and I think you have to, you have to give credit to good leadership and smoothing over some of those organizational elements uh, to where the conversation is headed in the right direction. So talk to us about the change in the technical understanding now that electronic warfare is, seems to be people get now, this is, this is legit. This is going on all the time, whether or not we call it warfare or conflict or whatever the, the, the verbiage is there, it's we're constantly under attack. And I think there was a long time where the military got that because that's something they they trained for, but the civilian side always thought it just wasn't going to either happen to them. They didn't plan for it. So um, how are we doing now that we realize the two sides can't, you can't not protect the civilian side because the rest of the world thinks of all those as our best targets. And, you know, we're just leaving them wide open for the most part. We saw that in the banking industry, definitely in the mid 2000s. Right. Uh, so, yeah, a couple of a couple of things come to mind there. One, uh, you know, the you're seeing that the intelligence requirements and the military requirements for network defense are starting to, you know, or, you know, ha- over the past really two decades have started to align. Right. Uh, intelligence has always been an ongoing issue, right? It's, it's not like the NSA wasn't prepared 10 years ago. Uh, so in, in terms of the civilian intelligence battle, that's been ongoing. In terms of the military uh, battle, if you will, or in cyberspace, we're, we're finally starting to develop some strategy and doctrine in the form of uh, whether it be in this, you know, the construct of defend forward and the idea of persistence engagement. Uh, you're starting to see some of those align in the sense that the time frame is similar, right? It's ongoing. It's not a one-off. Um, but I think the where where you see where we've got the big gap in our sort of societal defense is between public and private sector. And I know you've worked a lot on this. Uh, it's that's that's where the gap is, right? And you know, to your point about the banking industry, that uh, it we've seen largely in the private sector, but also with the banking industry, particularly over you're you're right, mid to late two thousands, uh, and then particularly post two thousand eight. Uh, it you know early on it was just we're we're not going to pay attention to cyber threats, whatever they are. Just build it into the budget, and you know we'll we'll absorb the, whatever red line is for that, and pay out to you know whatever our customers lose. You know you, you build that into your your corporate budget. You 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 predict for those losses. It, there's been a little bit of a change of mindset, but I mean particularly in the banking industry, to where okay now it's a business decision to actually actively prepare for these types of threats. We need to be on the forefront of you know understanding. You know whether it gets disclosed or not to the public sector. Uh, some of the most sophisticated uh, network defense uh, is coming, and necessarily has to come from the financial industry. 
we haven't really seen that from the rest of the public sector. Uh, and, you know, water and electric uh, in particular are some of the most vulnerable. Uh, slowly, we're starting to see better reporting requirements or, or guidelines coming out from CISA. Uh, but it's really the, the question that remains to me is for a lot of these businesses, whether they be large firms, you know, setting the, the, the banking industry aside for a second, because that's become an exemplar of how things have changed. But if you looking at, you know, big uh, energy firms or, you know, water providers, even smaller businesses, right? The question is, how do you make this a good business decision uh, to invest in cybersecurity when, you know, there are much, you know, there are other returns on investments in terms of what market share can provide to you. Uh, and so part of that is, you know, tacitly reshaping the, the, the markets themselves. Part of that's on, in my opinion, on uh, consumers to gravitate towards uh, providers that, you know, or towards companies that actually invest in uh, more security in terms of their own supply chains, but it also in terms of customer security. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, it's a multi-pronged issue that is not going to get solved overnight, but it's, it's one of those things that that's really where our weakness is, is how do you incentivize the private sector to cooperate better with the public sector and to make security a much better business decision? So one of the challenges, which I hear they're getting better at, but it's always been is, um, you know, working with some of my commercial clients was they would want in on some of the stuff when CISA was stood up there, like, we really want to be part of this. So I got them an invitation. And then I said, well, right, the meetings, this is pre-COVID, right? I was like, the meeting's October 1st. And they're like, oh, do we, we don't actually want to go to the meeting. We just want to listen in. And I was like, what? And they, well, yeah, because if our general counsel thinks if we go, then we're going to have some responsibility for the outcome. We just want to figure out what the government's doing. And we want to basically what the legal department was doing is trying to front run the risk analysis, but they didn't actually want to be part of a solution set. So it was, and and to their credit, they're like, what is my net gain for showing up? So the industrial players, because a lot of them have to, you know, they have had collaboration, you know, telecommunications have been doing it forever. Uh, some of them do it more openly than others, but that whole risk around industrial and the digital transformation has been a challenge. When we did a, um, we did a paper back in 2014, I think in, at AI, and it was interesting. We tried to get the, um, the electric, the energy sector to come in and, and just talk to us. They, they weren't walking in the room. They were like, we are not going to tell you what our problems are. We're not telling you how we're solving them. We're not going to tell you if we're working together. Those are behind the door secrets over on the wow. other side. And I was like, I hope the government's having a better chance with them than we are as a you know thoughtful think tank trying to help people get ahead of this. So I, I do definitely think the the industrial side of the ledger is something that to your earlier point, yes, I do have choices sometimes as a consumer to pick a, a more secured entity at, at multiple levels. I'm stuck with who my, you know, who's delivering me water or who most likely is delivering utilities to the facility that I'm in. Um, so that you hope that they are thinking quite a bit about this and they're protecting themselves, but you're not always sure. They're no, not really the, giving us a lot of assurance right, on that. Exactly. And, you know, one, I think one you know, hint in the right direction is what some of the larger tech companies are doing. Like, for example, uh, with Google's uh, now completed acquisition of Mandian, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bolstering their own uh, in-house analysis, uh, you know, vulnerability analysis. And uh, that is going to provide some synergy with what uh, I've heard that they're going to be doing with updating you know, certain updates to their products like Windows Defender that a lot of small businesses use, right? Uh, 
And so I think there are, you know, there are things that providers can do um, in that sense, uh, but it's, it's going to take much more of a sort of tectonic shift. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm hoping will eventually come onto the agenda is just like we had, you know, uh, post 9-11, we had the KYC in the banking industry and the banking sector is know your customer. And mm-hmm. we had a lot of those regulations updated from the 1970 Bank Secrecy Act with the Patriot Act of 2001. I'm hoping that at some point we'll have some know your provider or know your vendor regulations and guidelines that will come out from the government in terms of legislation, right? Nothing, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be something that's overly onerous. Uh, and, you know, obviously it's not going to be something that, you know, with every piece of software, you're not going to be able to, you know, vet, you know, with guidelines addressing the supplier of that software, the code authors, the product components, the version, that's just unrealistic, right? But there are, you know, there are steps that can be taken. And, and I think that, you know, eventually uh, to get the private sector on board, uh, you're going to have to shape the environment that way with some sort of, uh, you know, broad guidelines or regulatory guidelines uh, to, to secure supply chains. Because to the point that you made earlier, you know, solar winds, that, uh, that compromise and the JBS Foods compromises, that's the new norm, if you ask me. Yeah, they're constantly testing the system to see where the vulnerabilities are and and where they can wreck the most damage or do the most damage or wreck havoc. That's and it's and it's a you know it's it's also an issue of, uh, uh, you know, maximizing your output for the resources you're putting in. You know, back you know, fifteen years ago, the Russians would try to compromise multiple points of access across, you know, uh, different parts of society or different parts of the government. Now the mo seems to be, and it rightly so. Okay. How can we access, you know, one one small piece of the surface area? How can we infiltrate someone so far up the supply chain that we only have to hack once, infiltrate that network, and then we've got our hands in all the other networks downstream that use a software provider, for instance? Uh, it's it's just much more economical, uh, and that's I, that's really where things I think are headed, at least in terms of uh, pri- not only private sector but public sector hacks too, because you know the there were several public uh, agencies that were you know, affected by solar winds, and if you even look through the Chinese, uh, the Microsoft Exchange hack, that was even even worse, even though it got less press. So, is there anything in particular you either talk about in your paper or just want to mention? If there's a couple of things we could change that would be would bring us over to a bigger percentage of less risk. Uh, that's a that's a that's a mammoth of a question. Um, in, in the paper, you know, starting from I guess large to small. Uh, in the paper, we talk about really the need for measuring and assessing effectiveness in our military and intelligence operations and assessing the trade-off between the two. Now, that's no easy task. You can't just come up with a couple of indicators and then walk away, right? Even though that's the, the temptation is to say, you know, the bureaucratic stamp, we did it, we're fine, let's move on. Um, but, you know, part of this is maintaining the dual hat so that we can make those calls uh, instead of increasing the segmentation, not only in our defenses, but also in our decision-making, which is hugely important, um, but measuring effectiveness, you know, and the, so the question is then moving out from the, the military and intelligence side, how do we better coordinate across government agencies and figure out roles and responsibilities? Well, we've been working at that. Uh, one would hope that this would start to come out in our national cybersecurity strategy that should be released later this fall. Uh, but from everything that I've heard and a lot of reports is that uh, it, although the the release of it is being staggered with the national security strategy. 
to look like that it is, you know, subordinate to our larger national security strategy, there's not going to be too much communication between the two. So I think the Biden administration, it, if it plays out like I'm expecting, I really think they're missing an opportunity to link the national cybersecurity strategy with our broader national security strategy, uh, and particularly uh, defining the roles of, across government in terms of what this means in terms of, you know, larger and broader international competition with authoritarian regimes, um, but also in defining what is the role of the private sector in this broader competition that we have, right? It's, yes, it's, it's economic, but it's also values-driven competition that we're, that we're trying to win. Uh, so I think that, you know, those are, that's sort of the next level down in, in terms of broader is how do we align the government itself, but also the government and the role of the private sector? Uh, you know, we've, We've got some good progress made, again, with reporting requirements and a lot of the advisories that have come out of CISA. Um, and then, you know, the, the broader issues, uh, which would encompass a lot more, is, it, you know, ranging outside of the what's to be expected from the national security strategy, national cybersecurity strategy, is how, we don't really have a global democratic strategy for, you know, digital affairs and cyberspace. Um, you know, there's there's good there, there's hopefulness with the the digital bureau that's been stood up within the Department of State, um, but you know that that's not a government wide vision or strategy for how to deal with uh, increased authoritarian influence in in you know the digital sphere. And so this you know this ranges from everything to you know global approach. The U.S. How does the U.S. lead a global approach on ransomware? Which we've you know the summit that we had uh, is a good start. Uh, that the Biden administration had, but it doesn't end there. Um, how do we reconcile and deal with, you know, the one of the things I'm also writing on right now is the global spyware industry, right? It is, you know, uh, it's a threat to global human rights. Uh, and, you know, the administration's focus on human rights in particular, it's, you know, uh, it's a little hypocritical that there isn't a vision to deal with this. Um, and, you know, the, more broadly, how do we have a strategy to deal with the physical infrastructure that's underpinning uh, a lot of our digital services and digital means? So, you know, the, the 5G discussion that thankfully has been around for a little while, but the, the, the emerging discussion about, you know, what do we do about semiconductors, right? Uh, and how do we manufacture or create uh, new agreements on semiconductor industry, which is, you know, without semiconductors, cyberspace doesn't run. Uh, so those, you know, sort uh, to to make a short, uh, long answer short, uh, you know, in sort of, you know, those broader concentric circles, that's how I see those are the things that we really need to be focusing on uh, as a country. Well, that's that's a, and especially now, I mean, chips for an example is we're having to start thinking we're thinking more about our um, alliances and who we are partnering with. One of the one of the major things that people don't realize about the internet is it was built on a level of trust. And it was that the people that built HTTPS, they, they all knew each other. So they didn't build a lock in. It was, you know, the, the lock was basically you had a .edu address and you had to be at a, in, you know, the, the right institution to have one of those. So that alone was like, okay. And then slowly we made Gmails an identity marker, which, or sorry, just emails in general. And and so we've we have done a horrible job in any idea of design from a you know commercial perspective for the consumers. So it is interesting as we're having to start to look at this at every level, because unfortunately, those have become a lot of the ability to get into a system is the lack of any sort of locks and controls on the systems to begin with. 
but at the same time, though, that's, you know, that's one of the, the beautiful things uh, about cyberspace and, you know, particularly the Internet, if we're looking at just at that, is because it's so distributed, it's so resilient. So you can compromise, you know, you know, certain sections, certain elements, but you can't take the whole thing down. Right. Uh, and I think you see that's that's what's behind part of the drive for countries like Russia and China to sort of, you know, have their own national provision of Internet and sort of the, the balkanization of the Internet that uh, folks have been talking about for the last five years, at, at the very least, you know, and particularly the, the, with the testing of RUNet in Russia. Um, that's your you, that's why you see some of that drive, I think. But that's, you know, it is it's in the inherent dilemma of cyberspace is it's it's distributed to be resilient and for open communication. But that also means it's hard to secure you know, mm-hmm. every nook and cranny. Yep. No, I do a lot of work on Internet of Things, and there's always the question of where do you where should the security lie in that? And the people that make things that go in boxes usually want to be like, not it. <laughs> don't put it on our level because it's going to make everything cost more and people don't want their devices to cost more exactly. money. So do it, do it at the network level. And the network guys are going, that's a lot for me to have to handle. So yes, it's a never ending conversation. So what do you have going on on the horizon? What we should be, be on the lookout for? Uh, in terms of uh, the policy things that I'm looking for and in terms of writing projects down the pipe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm hoping that uh, the national cybersecurity strategy and the national security strategy, uh, it, it seems like we're going to see the national security strategy come out first and then potentially within a month, the national cybersecurity strategy, um, you know, they were supposed to be out around this month or October. So we'll probably see a delay like with everything. Uh, so I'm on the lookout for those. Uh, I have been keeping a, uh, an eye uh, intently on the spyware industry, particularly with uh, the, uh, you know, the, the reorganization of the NSO group, which is one of the more notorious right, uh, right. cybersecurity intelligence. They seem to be really so, good at this. <laughs> yeah, right. They are. Uh, and, you know, one thing that, you know, for all the lack of coordinated approach that there's been, but one success that does seem to have happened is the pressure that uh, blacklist, the Biden administration blacklisting the NSO group has done. Uh, to put pressure on on but the you know the with every step forward there's or two steps forward there's a potential step backwards they're releasing nso group has released about you know i think at least 17 percent of their company these engineers and these coders need to go somewhere they have talent so you know it does you 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 put one finger in the dam only to see there's a couple other places where water's going to creep through they're taking their talent somewhere so the question is you know, how do we help shape the the economic, uh, the political economy of the spyware industry so that it's more in line with democratic values? Uh, that's, you know, that's another thing that I'm looking on. Uh, and then, you know, more broadly, I'm, I'm looking at how the U.S. is, and in particular in the context of NATO, how we're going to be a, approaching uh, and implementing a lot of the cyber principles that have come out over the last year and a half. Uh, so that's, I'm focusing more on the implementation. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, 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 the bell ringer there is what is cyber command and the NSA going to be doing? Uh, and that's a lot where I focus. So, um, you know, in terms of my writing, uh, I, I'm working on a project uh, on the ransomware uh, industry and sort of what does it look like? Where are things flowing from to whom and where is it being deployed? Who is being targeted? Uh, we need some good description to be able to get some policy ideas. Uh, that's, you know, the necessary first step. Uh, and longer term, uh, I'm, I'm working on, uh, you know, a lot of the dilemmas that we have in terms of civil military and intelligence relationships in cyberspace and how they're so intimately intertwined uh, and some of the dilemmas that we face that are, are different from traditional civil military divides, um, you know, and more you know, what we think in terms of conventional capabilities and conventional operations. 
there are some things in cyberspace that are clearly non-conventional. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, that is a much more long-term project. Uh, Fantastic. Well, we will keep an eye out for those. And thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Well, thanks again for having me, Shane. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.